0: This episode is brought to you by Palamon's Fine Cutlery. Remember, when you stand up in front of your guests to carve that roast, you don't want to look like a putt sawing at it like a carpenter heaving over a 2x4. You want one of Palamon's professional class blades that can cut through flesh and bone in one fell slice like it was warm butter. Each Palamon blade is ingenuously brought by a famous craftsman you've never heard of. And each cutting blade employs Palamon's distinctive patented mercury embedding, so that when you bring the blade down on a bird or brisket, it heaves into the meat like a Robespierre guillotine. Included free is a handy whetstone and oil to keep your set of blades ready for every task. As a firm supporter of equality of the sexes, each Palamon blade has a male and female side. And when they order a full set of Palamon culinary and Table Knives, our listeners can have each one engraved with a meaningful motto like Caveat Digitus, or Eat What You Kill, or Happy Birthday, Martha Jean. Just order your set at their website and use the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, Palamon Fine Cutlery, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast.
1: Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story, you can only reread a Gene Wolfe story.
0: Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole.
1: Hi, I'm James Wynne,
0: And I'm Craig Brewer. Well, it's been a pretty active week, relatively. So, yeah. not lots of arguing, but we did get some nice comments, um, emails, and, and some DMs this time about.
1: Yeah, chapter 13 and earlier. Yeah. Of course, I mean, what, what is there to fight about in chapter 13, really? It's not a, <laughs> it's not a heavily contested chapter. No. Michael Andre Drisi reached out to us on email He to applaud a chapter 13 episode and to commiserate with us about our frustration with Citadel geography. We were surprised to realize that the corpse door is in the Citadel curtain wall, the wall that's made of unsmeltable metal. Mm -hmm. And Michael said, there was a little confusion about walking from the Oubliette to the master's chambers that made it sound to me like Sev was walking from a jail outside the tower. Rather than looking out through the open door as he passed, probably you figured it out. Curtain wall, corpse door, brother Porter. So the boys returning home in chapter one knew that brother Porter wouldn't give them a hard time. It was just the oddity of the guard, also not a problem, not being at the necropolis gate, and the unknowing volunteers coming along that made a problem. Seems like it. I sympathetically agree the local geography is as slippery as (sighs) Quicksilver. Yeah. Also, Michael, still thinking about the house as your temptation illustration. Craig, you and I went straight to Christ's temptation in the wilderness, mm-hmm. conciliator version. But Michael and Nigel Price thought it that it was most properly in the Garden of Eden. Michael's been rereading Operation Aries and Feels like he sees a temptation scene there as well, when the protagonist enters a strip club slash brothel, and there are a pair of sisters on stage, one with a robot snake. As he notes, I think Wolf repurposed a lot of bits from that freshman uh, attempt at a novel. So, you know, Michael might be right.
0: It means also that he really liked that image. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's That's one he, not necessarily one I would have wanted to get back in, but he really had fun with it.
1: That was but a crazy image, yeah
0: mm-hmm definitely
1: obi-wan spicoli great handle reached mm-hmm. out to us on reddit he said some nice things love the podcast look forward to hearing more and we'll always take that yeah ever seeds with a kind of correction and kind of clarification you know we were discussing the craziness at piteous gate at the end of shadow of the Torturer and how it was the ulans that attacked the travelers leaving Nessus which has its own level of insanity, uh, people would go through those gates in such numbers when you're such an easy pickings. And I mean, it's not really a big mystery because Wolf himself answered the question in an interview. But Obi-Wan Spicoli, somewhat exasperated at everyone's density, demonstrates that Wolf did not exactly hide that, what happened at the gate. He's Mm -hmm. tried for years, he says, to end wild speculation on the event without supporting (laughs) evidence. The first tip, of course, is Palamon's warning to Severian about those Ulans in Chapter 13, that the roads are closed. The next, he proffers, is in Chapter 12 of Claw of the Conciliator, uh, the Nautjules. It goes, the day before we had seen Ulans on patrol, men mounted as we were and bearing lances like those that had killed the travelers at the piteous gate.
0: Right. And that one I remembered, I have to admit that one was one thing that I, I wish I would have mentioned the other day, but he reminded us that there are a couple more.
1: Oh yeah. 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 That I mean, that was probably because Wolf was getting a lot of questions about it after claw of conciliator, even after claw mm-hmm. of conciliator came out. Severian drills down hard in Citadel of the Autark, in the very first chapter, The Dead Soldier, it says, um, it was much like the old road the Ulans had been blocking when I had become separated from Dr. Talos, Baldanders, Jalinta, and Dorcas when we left Nessus. But I was unprepared for the cloud of dust that hung about it. And finally, probably because he's still getting questions about it, in Earth of the New Sun, chapter thirty four, Saltus again. A good ends there, I answered. I know, thinking as I did, how Jonas and I walked there through the forest after the Ulans had scattered our party at the piteous gate, of finding wine in our ewer and many other things. I think that settles it. There's really no mystery. It's just Ulans. You are right, <laughs> Master P- Spicoli.
0: we should mention though that he that although that i'm starting to definitely lean that way that that's not necessarily the consensus and maybe not even the majority opinion i don't know um because mark garamini brought that up too and he was pointing out that one of the other places where something is mentioned and then never explained is also the the thing in the mine at saltus and that one common explanation of both of those things is that they both have to do with some kind of defense mechanism or or just, just part of the Autarch's army. And so one reason maybe Severian's not going into details about it is because they're you know military government secrets or something like that. Um, mm. And I think there's a place where he suggests that, too, where Severian says something like that later on. Um, and, and maybe is it, it I think it's in the conversation he and Jonas have near the beginning of Claw, where even even he mentioned something like that but nonetheless mark was just saying that you know because something's there or, or because they are talking about defenses and then something happens to scatter them that could be possible um the other reason is that so many people are walking there that it would be weird if every day people who are leaving the gate you know just got attacked by the Ulans. Um, well okay and that's well, another point too I know we're we're far away from that <laughs> chapter but still, we're so far a, away it's a
1: big but- but it's still, a big climax at well, the end wanna, of the book. Well, of course, we're interested. Well, yeah, but I want to drill drill down on that. Is, is he saying that the the people weren't attacked by Ulans at all?
0: No, I think that he's saying that they were, and that something else was going on too. And to me, then the question is, well, what? Okay, well, so here's think about this. This is the one gate that leads north, right? The one big gate that leads out of the city. So if people are going to leave Nessus, they either leave by the river or they leave on this this road. Right. Um, and tons of people are going. Like, it's a crowd. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a few people are trying to sneak through the gate. It's like a huge group of normal people. That would make me think, okay, it's okay for people normally to leave on this road if they're all going to go out. I mean, if the Ulans were just going to sit there and attack everybody who came through eventually nobody would you know make the suicide march like this right um because they're not all as clueless as Severian mm-hmm. at this point um so to me something else it seems like had to have caused this chaos but i don't know that there's necessarily any clue what they were going for like were they attacking Severian? probably not but what are other options were they going after Baldanders? like did he get noticed and there's some reason that the Autark or some of those creatures in there are trying to yeah. get ball damage. Maybe. I don't know. I kind of doubt it. Um, one thing Mark mentioned is that we do know that there have been Undine seen in the river. So was it possible that there was some connection with an undine or did they see baldanders and think it was a giant Uh, but the one point that uh, he brought up that I think is right is that it does happen right in the context of Jonas telling the story about the old woman who has the beans and that she's going to just throw them in the ocean which is some kind of I think pretty obviously weird story to talk about the origin of Abaya and Erebus Mm -hmm. and and these creatures Um, so with that sort of I don't know, foreshadowing. I don't know if that's the right term for at that point. That would make sense or a kind of hint that maybe something with the Undines is going on, or maybe they've thought that something about some group of people in here has some connection. But I don't know. I mean, even if it is just that the Ulans are guarding the road, what spawned them to
1: attack at that moment? Exactly. Right. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't have an answer. Well, we might if we if we could ever figure out those beans, <laughs> we might yeah. be able to answer that as well. Yeah.
0: We got a little time till we get there though.
1: Yeah. Uh but um Obi-Wan Spicoli actually has his own question. Mm-hmm. He in that quote he says what I find is interesting is the line in Citadel of the Autark passage where he mentions true roads. What is that? He even differentiates them from old roads leading out of yeah. Nessus.
0: Yeah, I don't think we read that part, did we? I can't remember, but it just says, "At last, the path joined a true road." Something I've heard of often, yeah, but never trodden except in decay. And so my my immediate reaction was a true road would be like an actual paved highway.
1: That's Um, exactly my thought. Is that it was? Oh, this is this is what's left of a of a highway, right?
0: Right, and that the roads that they're talking about actually traveling on are you know dirt clearing paths, you know through through whatever. So basically he's talking about like fallout, <laughs> right? Yes. Where, you know, in fallout world you have destroyed highways and then right. you also have paths. That everybody uses. Um, but since they're so broken, they're, they're actually, you can't actually walk on them.
1: Well, yeah, that's exactly what I thought, but mm-hmm. I can't rectify the cloud of dust that hangs about it. That's kind of hmm. odd. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone has an answer to that, I mean, technically, we don't have to worry about that for four years, but still you know (laughs) now it's got me wondering
0: it hangs over us like a cloud of dust yeah but good but thanks for that thanks for that Obi-Wan speculi and I just wanted to say that out loud
1: that was really good Um, Rasan Majors reached out to us on email to confirm his agreement with me that the exultants are riddled with megatherian allegiances he offers his own speculation it's Deep in, it's deep into Dr. Talis's play at the House Absolute, which, to be quite honest, I'm really quite intimidated by that. I've already started writing my summary of that chapter, and we might well spend four episodes mulling through it. I I could see that.
0: That's a good time to get some expert guests on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I'll just (laughs) Just read his. We don't have to do it. (laughs) Exactly. I don't want to. Yeah, keep my hands off. Keep my hands clean. But I'll just read his theory, and you guys can do something with it if you will. He says, Nod, whom some link to the Megatherians against Gabriel's Hierogrammates, mentions that the son of messiah takes his daughter to wife and that their children will be exalted. He says, I don't believe that choice of word is accidental. And no, I don't either. He says, I don't read it as literally that the exaltants are offsprings of the Undines, but rather spiritual children in the sense that the exaltants seem to be children of the age of galactic conquest, an age that the Megatherians imply they would like to see revived if they had their way. That being said, this reference could speak to a more direct relationship between the quote other people and the emergence of the exaltant families. Well, too many weeds for me to go into and not get lost, but really, thanks for this, Rasan. I'll keep it in mind when we get there. I swear he also wants to counter michael Andre DeRussi's, uh excellently argued theory about Jonas's story since we were just talking about that the one about the woman and the seeds from beyond the world. Rasan says. I believe that the reference to Cadro of the 17 Stones is a direct reference to Cadro's allegiance to the seventeen seeds from beyond the world. I confess that I believe the seeds in Jonah's story are a direct reference to the constantly growing megatherians. Yeah, I like it.
0: Yeah, I mean that's 17. I mean, you've got the group of 17. That's the the big thing. I mean, even though I think we mentioned, but 17 is definitely a number that Wolf often uses, not just in the solar series, but in uh, or the solar cycle, but in a lot of the things is sort of an unlucky number. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely, you know, once you know that the Ashians have that group of 17 and then there are these, yeah you know, everything else, it seems like the number that definitely ties all the ties, all the bad guys together in one way or another.
1: But then it's easy for me to like a theory when I don't even have to commit to one until 2021. <laughs> I need to create a Curiosity Earthus file for things like that. You know, episodes in the distant future.
0: We have one. It's called earth.net.
1: <laughs> That's true. But then I won't be had yeah, have to go through and say, wait, wait, I had a theory about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and if you uh, stop by the Facebook page or look at the profile on tw- our profile on Twitter, you'll see the really cool new logo design uh, for the, for the name, uh, Rereading Wolf, uh, that Mike Benowitz created for us. So beautiful. I love that thing. No matter what, how you do it, no matter how you arrange it, that lettering looks so classic. I just love it. It's perfect. You cannot ruin it.
0: And why is there a giant red astral body? <laughs> in the that, James? It seems, I have no idea.
1: It what, seems what, what so random. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just don't get it. <laughs>
0: But no, but thank you so much, Wits. We really appreciate that. That was man. awesome. He's been really cool because he's he's given us a whole bunch of options and, and all pro bono.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are difficult to please. That's the thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> So,
0: since this is such a special chapter that we get terminus S, we thought we would have a, another guest with us this time. So, we asked Matthew Keeley, who you have probably read from various essays on tour.com and you may remember back from the Earth List, very active participant back there. But so, thanks for joining us, Matthew. And maybe we could start by having you say a little bit about what you've written.
2: A l- I guess a little bit of background. I mean, I, I worked in the publishing industry for for a while, but I've for the past oh, well, wow, like three or four years, I've done occasional writing for Tor. Usually, and on a little bit of everything, so I've written about Gene Wolfe a few times, I've written about Ari Lafferty, I've written about some obscure books that I think should be rediscovered or looked at again, or that kind of cross, you know, sort of genre slash literary divide. Obviously, I think that's a pretty artificial barrier. I've written about some movies, like I wrote about Stalker and about some Czech animation. And then I also review current books. So I, you know, reviewed um, Nina Allen's new book, reviewed Michael Swanwick, people like John Crowley. And they also do some reviewing for the LA review of books. So I just published my sentences with them.
1: Well, every uh every Wolf reader hopes to uh, write a How to Read Wolf article, but you have written two. I think
2: yeah, I've wrote two. And Tor, I think, has republished them under Slightly different
1: headline this year. They they republished it under a title, and it, that's why I missed it. And they were just I said, oh, it's something brand new. And then mm-hmm. at first I felt like I had read it, and then I thought this title is almost Wolfian because it gives me the idea that you're going to go through and examine every one of Wolf's best opening lines. But well, when is he going to get to the opening lines? <laughs> right. So so basically, I, I
2: that piece I just thought it'd be kind of interesting. People always talk about. Wolf as being this, you know, kind of endlessly subtle writer of you know, unreliable narrators, and you know, you're you're drawing points between, you know, like the fourth book in a series, or you know, like the way in Long Sun, there's that literally one letter I that changes the entire, you know, arc of the series and your understanding of it. And I thought it would just be kind of fun to like look at his openings because I was, I'd always remembered uh, the opening of The Shadow of the Torturer and a number a number of his other books i thought you know it's, it would be kind of fun to just look at the very 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 beginning and and kind of give it give a little sense I mean, not every book of his necessarily had a sentence that you know i could i could get really into but
1: mm-hmm.
2: the book of the New Song or fifth head of cerberus certainly you know
1: right well he do he he always did was good at catching you at least within the first paragraph. so
2: yeah the other the other article was just kind of one of those, and and other people have done similar things, to so sort of like, you know, how to read Wolf or how to read the Book of the New Sun, because I do think sometimes people talk about, it, oh, you know, it's like the most challenging and difficult book. And, you know, there are many ways of being challenging and difficult. And Wolf, I don't think is challenging and difficult in every way. But I think it's also important to talk about the, the fact that he's a lot of fun in a way that there there are some... Science fiction books uh, that are more popular that I think are a lot less fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that was kind of my, my
0: motivation there. I remember what? reading the Foundation series out of a sense of duty <laughs> when I was <laughs> in
2: high
0: There are things I really enjoyed about him, but there were parts where I was just like, I, I feel like I have to read this if I'm going to be into
2: this. Thing. Right. Well, and, and Wolf has a real style, or actually, I think a number of styles. I mean, like, you know, there's a style mm-hmm. of the Sun. Yeah. He's got that kind of late style that is very dialogue heavy and almost these like Socratic dialogues that, that dominate some of the older books. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are certain, you know, especially kind of mid century science fiction writers who their style is totally generic, just the facts. And then, of course, there are any number of writers whose style is just, I wish you could manage just the facts, but you're just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> totally bad prose. Um,
1: well, how did what was the first your first uh, Wolf book?
2: Um, I'd love to have like a really exciting answer, but i had heard he was great, and they said the book of the new Sun was the best. So my freshman year in college, I bought a copy of that and started Shadow of the Torturer. Read it in two days, and I said, I, I love this. It's just incredible. I want nothing more than to read Claw of the Conciliator. And then I thought, wait, there are only four books or five. <laughs> Let's wait about a bit. So I'd read another book and then read the 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 Wolf after, you know, mm-hmm. as Well,
1: that's contrary to advice, right? Because you said uh, you know read fast, but not too fast,
2: right? And and and, and reread and and right. you know, just you know even rereading the the chapter for for tonight's discussion, I was like, oh yeah, I, I'd forgotten this or. Mm-hmm that's interesting or just re- as reading actually on my screen, I've got the, uh, the ebook version. It's like, Oh, I can, you know, look up that name. What's the significance of that? Oh, you know, there's like some Greek, but there's also some Latin, you know, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a you know, very enjoyable way to, to do it.
0: Yeah. I think I knew pretty quickly into shadow at some point when I finally was reading it for real, instead of finally paid attention to it, I knew I'd be rereading it. And so (laughs) I just started chugging through um, because I was like, I know I'm coming back to things.
1: Well, when I read it, I didn't know that it it was a great work. (laughs) I just knew it was an interesting author that I had never heard of. And I was carried along by the fact that I knew there was going to be a payoff. All of this weird stuff going on just outside of my view was going to have a big reveal. And then I said, wait, no, I think now I have to find out where I missed it because I think he must have told me. So, and,
2: and that that's something that what's always interested me, just talking to people who who read the book, that they miss the fact that all the towers of the Citadel are spaceships or mm-hmm. they miss some of the uh, convoluted family dynamics at play, yeah. to right. you know, be euphemistic. Or just how many dead people are coming back to life, or people right. are dying and not noticing it. Yep. Also, probably just some of the the very Wolfian themes of some of the Catholic stuff, like you know, there's that black mass in, in the second book, mm-hmm. essentially, which is immensely disturbing. But you know, I, I think it's be even more you know, immensely disturbing if you're thinking, oh wow, this is this you know this kind of you know, perverse Eucharist. Which mm-hmm. not everyone is going to, to to read as I guess so
1: you met uh, wolf at Readercon
2: Yeah so back I've been on the earth list oh wow for you know over a decade and I'd never gone to a science fiction convention at all, but I saw that Wolf was speaking at Readercon in Massachusetts I'm from Massachusetts so I just immediately, bought a ticket and I was like wow Gene Wolfe and <laughs> a lot of all these other people I admire were going to be there and so right. the very first day I you know drive up to the the Marriott and I don't think it was Burlington Mass it might have been at, at that time you know middle of nowhere you know suburban Boston Massachusetts and get my registration complete and go in the opening event and I see Gene Gene Wolfe at the front of the auditor- auditorium with Rosemary and mm-hmm. just shortly after I just kind of go up and I'm like, "Oh man, this is I'm super introverted and
1: oh no, 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 I I I've been there. I I remember the first time I met him, I was so starstruck and I regret every minute of it." So,
2: and so, you know, I just go up and say, "You know, I'm I'm a huge fan of your work and really admire you." And so, you know, you know, that that kind of thing. And he was very gracious and kind of throughout that that weekend of the convention, you know, whenever we passed in the hallway, he'd kind of wave or, you know, say hi. And I, the last day when I was leaving, I think he was going to, to lunch or something and I'm walking to the car and he's driving by in a car and, you know, waves at me just like a very, you know, <laughs> and you, you get this, you hear all these stories of him just being such. A gracious and kind, yes. of mentor to, to so many people, and just in that very limited experience, that's certain, Certainly, what I found. Yes. And also, I don't currently work in publishing, but I, I worked in publishing for a number of years.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And the first person I ever met in the industry was David Hartwell. You know, who was Wolf's oh. longtime editor. Right. And I bought a few books from him at ReaderCon. And I figured out his email address and <laughs> wrote to him saying, Hey, you know, I'm a recent college graduate. I'm really interested in publishing. Can you tell me about this? And he said, Yeah, you know, I'd love to get lunch. And I said, Yes, I'll, I'll do that. And we set a date. Of course, i take the bus into New York, which I think he he, he kind of felt guilty about. He's like, Can you <laughs> come out all the way to, to meet me? Yes. <laughs> I don't know that I said that, but. Why no? <laughs> so, you know, it's like I'm going to the Flatiron building because um, Tor was still, you know, right. earlier this year in the Flatiron building and kind of like staring around and, and, and being impressed. And go, go out to lunch with him. And he's just telling me all these incredible stories where, you know, we're both eating. You know, he's talking about Philip K. Dick, who we edited, and Robert Heinlein, who was his favorite writer when he was 12, who he edited, and all this stuff. But towards the middle of the meal, you know, he just kind of like puts his fork down and and stares at stares at me, and you know, he's got that the the glasses and and one of his mm-hmm. ties, you know, which are you know kind of very garish. He says, you know, well, what do you think about Gene Wolfe? And <laughs> this was clearly a very very important question to, and as a well, you know, he's my favorite writer, and talked about the book of the New Sun and the Wizard Knight, and I mean, I think by that time I'd probably read almost everything that had published up to that day. So, you know, it's able to, to be cogent. Yeah. But you know, it's just like this very, very clear moment that I, like, I do not want to think what it would have happened if I said, Oh yeah, I, I don't rate Wolf or, <laughs> or he wrote that, that old Sun book. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: It's also a moment where he finds out if you've done your homework, right?
2: <laughs> like, yeah. right.
0: do you know who I am and who I do? And yeah, I'll like him.
2: Yeah, well, I, I mean, actually, when I, when I was a reader con, one of the books I bought from him that the first time was a, a copy of Operation Ares. Oh, gotcha. And I was like, oh. wow, this this is so cool. And, you know, how much is it? And of course it's signed. And it's, you know, I'm the, he's like, oh, it's 10 bucks. So I'm like, oh, great. That's such a great deal. And then he looks at me he's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's actually five. I'm like, What? <laughs> and you know even today i went to an event a few months ago and with claire cooney who has a, a book out with tor.com and if you look, read the um, acknowledgements to her book you know she talks about how much a great mentor dean wolf was to her mm-hmm. and just that how how much of a shadow he casts over over the genre and he may write about the shadow of torturers but the the shadow he casts over the genre is a lot more uh
1: yeah benign <laughs> <laughs> well you know I, i've heard him talk about advice to writers and you'd think that he must be very tough on them but honestly i've never seen him uh tough on anybody as far you know an aspiring writer. he's always a very encouraging mentor as far as i can tell uh, maybe you know maybe once he gets down to the brass knuckles he gets really tough
0: there's the story about Clarion. I know that he was right. on the staff at Clarion one time and, and everybody like so many of the students turned against him because he was... Really he revolted. Yeah, from what, I, from what I understand and I, I forget, I've heard the story I think from a couple different places, but surely things have gotten advanced but that he was basically just brutally honest with his opinions about things and people were Mm -hmm. sort of like well that's not helpful and he's like i'm trying to tell you what i really think and what i think (laughs) an editor is gonna think and uh instead of it being like a a big you know happy everybody supporting everyone else he was very practical i don't know i've never actually been to clarion so i don't know what goes on but but i can imagine that especially among younger people that might have been a little off-putting, or maybe even more about older. I don't know, but I don't know who was there. I don't know anything like that. But
2: the, the, I guess what I'd say about that is just that if you're a writer, you know, you're, you're pouring kind of like heart and soul into, into what you're writing, and then it's really terrifying to think about like what an editor does, how they react. In my previous job in publishing, there were times when I, I would be reading something, and I'd just be like, okay. I got ten pages into this novel, and I know I'm not going to be recommending it.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah,
2: and I'm not going to be finishing it. And that's something that I'd be reluctant to tell writers, just because with the, the sheer amount of stuff that comes in. Mm-hmm. Right. So, frankly, having that kind of honesty early on in the process is better because you know i'm sure there are books that, that would have been great if only someone had edited them before the agent mm-hmm. um, had submitted them to, to right. publishers so well
1: yeah he, he i remember him talking about his own original beginnings and that he had a very candid editor who who cluttered his pages with red ink and he seemed to feel like that was really very important to him But, so, I don't know. It's hard to say how it came off, but it's hard for me to imagine him being cruel.
0: Well, good. Well, why don't we go ahead, guys, and get into the chapter itself.
2: Chapter 14, Terminus Est.
1: Severian has been told that he is being exiled, being sent to be an executioner. Uh, More than that, a lictor to the remote city of Thrax, the city of windowless rooms. He's gone to get his things, and he climbs up to the top of the Matican Tower to look one more time on the Citadel and Nessus from the peak. And then he comes down and returns, as requested, to Palamon's office before he leaves. Palamon says, I have a gift for you. For whatever reason, Palamon does not seem to bear Severian any ill will. Severian had asked how many spoke in his defense, and at first, Palamon says, well, more than two. So that's, you know, Drat, Rosha, and the Ada, I guess. And then he stopped and said, more than three. So perhaps he suddenly remembered to add himself. Severian says that he doesn't deserve a gift, and Palamon agrees. but he notes that if he deserved it, it wouldn't be a gift. It would be a payment. He says, uh, I can't forgive you for what you've done, but I cannot forget what you were. Since Master Gerloise rose to journeyman, I have had no better scholar.
0: So when we get this little part here, I just like that we're still talking about the little tiny aside about gifts and payment, that there's, there's a little sort of oddly philosophical kind of distinction being made there but it's still about what you deserve and what you don't deserve, mm-hmm. which goes way back or goes back to the the last chapter. That's very much about trying to decide, you know, what is justice? What's the right thing to do? What's the difference between the right and the legal thing to do? What's the right between the, 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 the right and the legal and the political thing to do? And we're still getting that here. And even with this gift, there's, it starts off with this sort of weighing of moral options. And I know that's, you know, a lot to lay on just a few sentences there, but <laughs> it's still this going. I just kind of like that because as I was thinking about what we talked about last week, it just seemed appropriate that in all their sort of thinking about what to do with Severian, it seemed like they were, it was just this arcane and sort of confusing, even though it makes sense in the end why they decide to do it. It's it's all the lines between morality and law and, mm-hmm. and politics are all sort of mixed up and hard to figure out. Um, and the same kind of thing is happening here. Like, I'm going to give you a gift. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And and there's not a lot of clarity in, you know, even though I think behind it is just this sense of, you know, Palmon still likes him and he just, you know, there's, there's that behind it, but it's all, it all has to come through this, this weird fog.
1: Well, this is a very uh, Christian sentiment. It's uh, a lesson that every kid learns in Sunday school, that a gift is free and that if it's not free, then it's wages
0: yeah also do by the way, just just to note here we get to another point where he's like, You're the best scholar. So we find <laughs> out later it's because of his memory was one of the main reasons,
1: but right, yeah yeah He lays a black case on his desk. It's as nearly as long as a coffin, so what five and a half feet. That's just the case though. it has silver catches to keep it closed, and when he opens them. They rang like bells, the clanging of Malrubius's spoon on the bulkhead as Severian drowns, Alton's voice, which tolled like a bell, now the case of Terminus Est, bells, bells, bells.
0: Always at these places where something is happening. And, and I mean, we didn't, we will talk about the title of the chapter, but Terminus Est, you know, right. it's the, it's a, could be the end. It could be the line of division. And we have that bell right there when something's changing, when something's about to happen, that right. sound of
1: the bells is back again. And it is, of course, Terminus Est. Uh, Severian doesn't know it, but it is made by a famous swordwright. right? says he's not going to give him the case. He calls it a casket. Because it would be too cumbersome, he'll give him the sheath and the baldric that's the the sword belt. The sheath is made of sable man skin, which is to say it's not made of the animal, the sable it's made of human skin, dyed black, is that right?
2: That's how I read up, yeah, which is you know it's one, one of those very dark details that you that you tend to forget
1: right <laughs> um. and it's a term it's a term that he's well aware of like a term for, for any type of cloth or leather. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have to go down to the, the fabric store and get myself a scroll of man skin.
2: Like, yeah. Like he's not, it's not like if you go to like, you know, an antiquarian library and they're like, we have this book that is bound in human skin. And <laughs> it's the thing that freaks out the people on the tour. It's like, um, yeah. no, no, it's,
1: it's the man skin section that they, uh, <laughs> that you've been perusing. And
2: it's not the
0: first time we see it, right? Because the, the little bag that, that he says is made of doe skin at one mm-hmm. point that he gets later, uh, or the Dorcas, it's Dorcas who makes it for him, right? He makes the little bag is that, that? Um, oh shoot, that gets called different things. I know that's one of the, the things that his, people often claim his memory is wrong because there's the little bag that sometimes goes doe skin, but then it's made of man skin later on, if I'm remembering correctly. but it's not the first time Severian's going to carry around a a carrier, a little bag of human
1: leather. The sheath almost envelops the pommel, which means I think that it covers the blade guard as well. The leather is soft, he says, as soft as glove leather. The blade itself, not counting the pommel, is one L long. An English L is a yard and a half, 114 centimeters.
0: The, in the last part of uh, claw he has an l represents the traditional length of the military arrow five spans or about 40 inches all right so okay. that's that's how he he puts it later in claw just in case that's slightly different from traditional english <laughs> usage
1: don't know Slight, slightly longer than a yard uh, yeah i didn't yard, go check all my had, various had a yard and a half yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was figuring 45 but when i was doing the calculation but yeah he said about he said about i did i said about <laughs> no, no one's going to get me on a rata this time. <laughs> it's square pointed, which is to say it doesn't have a point. Uh, but it has no point because it's for chopping, not poking. It's double edged with a man edge and a woman edge. This is a society where everything about the sexes is segregated. The edge ends a hand's breath from the guard.
0: No, that just is, I don't, I have to admit, I don't know a whole lot about swords, Um, but I did look up that um, the male and female edge, that that is a common thing.
1: Is it Um, really? I looked for that and I couldn't find anything on that. I found
0: found some things um, that suggested, not that it was like the crazy, the super common thing in the end, but it was definitely out there uh, as as sort of the idea.
1: Well, did Um, you find out what it meant?
0: No, (laughs) but it was, it was mentioned. a few times as there being different things i mean and it's sort of funny too if you look up male and female edge sword or something like that terminus s shows up
1: yeah yes that was my problem
0: (laughs) that's why i was wondering like okay is that really something that's out there um or not because it's it's not it's not a, a it's not a ton but i did find examples of people talking about the male edge and the female edge and i'm still not really sure exactly what that means
1: yeah, I mean, I, I just
0: I I think it mean it means two sides, but is one wider than the other? Is one longer than the other? I
1: wasn't sure. Some readers read that as to say you use the 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 male edge against a on a man's neck and a female edge against a woman's mm-hmm. neck. I can't remember that that's in the book, and I couldn't find something when I did a cursory search. So, do you guys know of any? Can you guys remember an event like that? Oh, I I use the female edge. I can't.
0: I'm I'm feverishly searching
2: through my
1: yeah i don't remember when he like when he executes morena that he he, and he does Uh, a lot of details
2: at the end of hold on chapter seven of claw aja is asking to to die and obviously he doesn't kill her i sought good footing and my fingers found the woman's head at one end of the guard the head that marked the female edge and a little later again, strike. But by that time, I had climbed out of the veil.
1: Okay, so he does. So he is going to use the female edge for that.
0: And yeah. does that suggest that each part of the pommel has like there's a male a male head on one side and a female that, head on the other?
2: That's what I assume. Yeah. I mean, it, oh, oh. the woman's head at one end of the guard. So
0: gotcha. And that's not. I have to admit, I remember thinking that now, but that's not what I remember when I think about Terminus S. That it has little heads like that. But
1: oh yeah, I did that. And I was reminded when I did the reading yeah. of those little heads on the guard. the guard. I'm totally Which the, Did
0: any of the pictures re- reproduce that? I don't think so.
1: I don't know. I have to look. But the guard is made of thick silver. And, and as you say, there's a head carved on either end. The grip is made of onyx stone with silver bands. There's the opal stone at the end. The Severian says that although art had been lavished on the sword, it would have been beautiful without it. He says, quote, it is the function of art to render attractive and significant those things that without it would not be so and so art had nothing to give her engraved on the blade is the phrase terminus est quote curious and beautiful letters we've never seen severian study but apparently he's been studying ancient languages for the last year he says, quote, I had learned enough ancient languages since leaving the Atrium of Time to know that they meant this is the line of division. Also, this is the the place of parting. I think, elsewhere. And of course, obviously, this is the end.
0: And what does Typhon call it? Is that what Typhon sees it and immediately says, uh, ah, where's my note?
1: I think it'd be said of separation uh, or
0: parting i think it's something like that yeah uh she's terminus uh this is the place of parting okay yeah that's what makes sense. um yeah it's funny i actually my son's taking latin in high school and i i just said terminus s what does that mean i showed him the chapter earlier today when i was reading it and he was just like the end <laughs> he was like, this is the end so um but that's that's at least what what came up to him and all of all of those work in a certain way, but I, I one thing I've always liked about it is how inconsistent the translation of that is.
1: Right. Well, he's Wolf is very interested in the multiple meanings of words, and he'll often uh, translate something in a slightly different way every time.
2: I mean, I, I was just thinking as I was reading this chapter about lines of division. I mean, obviously, this is a line of division between. Severian's previous life and his new Mm -hmm. life but also just how in wolf that the lines of division are often very unclear between is this science fiction is this fantasy or later on and i mean also in this book but especially later on like whose head are we in anyways because (laughs) he's got a few people moving around in there and yeah like, you, you really can't distinguish necessarily be- between them, or it, it's difficult. So it, it makes sense for it, for it to be kind of ambiguous. You know, you yeah. want it to be the sword that just cleanly slices everything in two, but in fact, you, you find that you can't, that there were yeah. these, you know, the blade sticks or, or whatever. Mm-hmm.
1: Severian's so life itself at this point is very much like that of Earth earth could continue on going exactly as it is and and just be the earth that the uh, megatherians have faded for it constantly getting colder and colder until it finally dies out or it can face a rebirth it can it can face an upturning of everything and a new life and that's what severian severian could have stayed at the madican tower been a torturer among many torturers and continuing with the guild as you know untold number of, of tortures have done in the past or he could show mercy and upturn everything and be forced into a new life that he can't even imagine even
2: within this chapter i mean he imagines that he is going to spend the night under a tree on the outskirts of the city mm-hmm. And then he actually discovers, oh, actually, you know, actually, I cannot uh, get to the outskirts of the city. I can get out of the poorer parts, and I can get to this bridge, but this city, only by
1: walking all night,
2: right? Is it, You know, he cannot fathom the size right. of, of the city, and he so even even his young visions of a kind of adventure and travel pale before the reality. I've actually got a little bit of a story that you might recall from the Earthlist, but. If you were on the Earth list, I believe I posted this here, but I'm from Worcester, Massachusetts. And for many years, we had this great museum, the Higgins Armory Museum, now closed. But all of its collections are now at the Worcester Art Museum. And one of the things that they had was the Sword of Justice from Germany around 1700 to 1735. I've, I've got the, the pulled up on my computer and it's this ornamental executioner sword that was probably not actually used in execution, but it it very much reminded me of Terminus Est. I mean, it doesn't have the, the fancy mer- mercury stuff going on in it, but it's got that same the square. It, it doesn't have a point. It kind of like ends almost like a platter. And it doesn't have the man and woman's head, but it's got all these engravings. It's got a figure of, incised sized figure of justice on the blade which she's got the scales and the blindfold and all all of that. This is, you know, literally on the blade, about halfway up. And the blade is inscribed in German, but they provide a translation. When the poor sinner is deprived of life, then he will be placed under my hand. When I raise a sword, may God give the poor sinner eternal life. So forty four and a half inches long, blade itself thirty five inches, and it weighs four pounds and ten ounces, if you ever wanted to know, I guess. <laughs> you know, if, if you wanted to know like, pounds and ounces and not L's and... Stones. <laughs> yeah. So so it, the grip, however, is covered in fish skin, not man skin. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah. Apparently you have these blades being made from the last quarter of the 17th century into the first quarter of the 18th century.
1: Yeah. Oh, so that's really interesting. That's great.
0: I've there's a when you mentioned that I pulled up a little there's a YouTube video of someone showing it, <clears throat> which I, I'm pretty sure that's the, the one that you're talking about. I can't tell if it's exactly that. But yeah, it's amazing to look at that. So and it's exactly like you
2: described. So I just remember seeing that and being like, Oh wow. This is this is a, a less science fictional, fantastic version of, of the sword that I, I know very well yeah. from from reading Gene Wolfe, though. Yeah. Perhaps not as well as I thought, because I'd forgotten stuff like the man and the, and the woman head and the man skin. I don't have a perfect memory, unlike some people.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we're not so sure about Severian, so just right. For the record.
0: I did go to, of all, a Renaissance Fair in uh, Texas. It's called Scarborough Fair. It's won by Dallas. But one year, this is I was in my 20s and we had gone back. But someone had intentionally made a type of Terminus Est, like it was... You know how they have all the, the blacksmith people who will remake you know swords mm-hmm. from various books and this guy had made a terminus s and, and oh. he he had the he said he had the right length the sword or the pommel and the decorations he said he did, totally did his own way but he actually he didn't have anything obviously to, to move like like the the metal on the inside or the liquid metal but he did have it flattened off he said he tried to figure out if there's some way he could have made like a clear tube of mercury go down the middle, at least to kind of make it look like something was kind of rushing back and forth, but he couldn't figure out a good way to do it. So, yeah. um, but it was still pretty cool to see the thing right there. And it was, it was, it was huge. I couldn't imagine carrying that around <laughs> on my back for however long. So
1: It wasn't just four pounds right. then. You know. <laughs> what year did you go to Scarborough Affair?
0: That would have been after I had left, but I came back and was visiting friends. It would have been like late nineties, early two thousands, something like
1: that. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, I think the last time I've been is like ninety one or something like that. So
0: that was the one I always went to when I was a kid. Scarborough Fair was was my Renaissance Fair.
1: So. Yeah, they, are. they pick the hottest, oh yeah, whatever the hottest was year is going to be. Oh, it was always miserable
0: and just terribly <laughs> hot. But yeah, but I still went every year.
1: So when Severian raises the sword, it's as though I wrestled a serpent. He learns that the blade is hollowed and contains hydra that is, mercury. Mercury is actually heavier than iron. The idea is that it makes the blade light to raise, but when you bring it down, the mercury flows to the tip and brings it down heavy when you chop. This is a blade for execution. Supposedly, this will make the blade easier to hold upright for long periods. I suspect this engineering would not be actually as straightforward and practical as described here but it is a cool idea
2: I think swords and you know fantasy and science fiction you have to give them leeway for being very cool
1: <laughs> yeah you have to have the coolness factor what's the point
2: and compared to like you know like Michael Moorcock with Stormbringer it's like okay you know this is a sword with some interesting engineering It it's not like you know a, a demon that eats souls right. you know, it, it, you know, it's 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 you know, it's, it's it's a triumph of engineering, not Freudian. Uh. <laughs> no, absolutely.
0: That's that's one thing I expected. I remember when I first read it, I was like, "Oh, okay, it's an executioner's sword." So I expected it, honestly, to be like Stormbringer. I was like, "Okay, is it going to suck in souls or something?" Before right. I knew what it was. Yeah, I actually kind of like that. It's. That it's supp- it's this mat it's it's not it stands in the place of a magic sword, but it's not magic.
1: Yeah, but it turns out that Severian sucks in those <laughs> instead. Well, and,
2: and then and then you know you know it shatters, and and that's a mm-hmm. really shocking moment because that's but, but not supposed to happen. You know, right. it's it's, a, it's this very cool sword that he's frankly a little bit obsessive about keeping <laughs> it clean and keeping it in its sheath and keeping it in the whetstone, and it it, it really kind of stings when it breaks
1: right yeah
0: and that's the thing i mean we're talking all about the physical stuff right now but but this moment is really going to mark Severian because i mean how many times does he do absolutely irrational things just to hang on to the sword right or to go back someplace to get it or or to put himself or whoever just in further danger to go find it um, whenever he loses it it's not only all the symbol of, of you know his role as an executioner but it also becomes his one link to this older world, right? To, to his upbringing, to his school. And so when it shatters and he's able to move on, that's actually, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like you said, it's like, it's not supposed to happen, but at the same time, it has
2: to happen for Severian. Eventually I feel like, like to, to get to right. that point. And uh, as for kind of irrational attachment to swords, I mean, you really want a cool sword. I mean, you know, if it's just like the blacksmith knocked it off on an off night, you can, you can say, okay, I can, I can lose that. But I mean, this is a really, really cool thing. <laughs> you yeah. 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 you, 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 you kind of get that.
0: It's right. amazing still to me too, that the way, well, I mean, I shouldn't be amazed it's fiction, but, but the fact that it's, it's, it's this tool that's specifically meant for one kind of thing. And every time I think about that, moving metal in there. It seems to me like that would make this sword just absolutely terrible and almost useless for fighting. And yet he uses it all the time. Um, right. Yeah. Now I could be wrong. It's not handling well, swords. You get but
1: used to it. Right. <laughs> it just
0: seems like if a sword's balance was constantly moving, that that would just throw you right. off all over the
2: place. I mean, well, the other thing is you can't stab with it really. I mean, right. it, yeah. so I, I mean, I guess, you know, he's just making like prison, you know, when he's fighting, I guess he's making the very unclean versions of the cuts he would be making when he's properly executing someone.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I think about when, uh, when he's uh been being taken to Votalis and he fights the guys on top of the, the creature, the elephant type okay. creature, I forgot the name for it. Yeah. And he's, he's beheading people, right? Like that's what he's, he's like, beheading yeah. people on the fly sideways. And yeah.
1: So. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a definitely a fantasy sword. He has sharpened it so much that he just cleanly whacks off a guy's yeah. head without uh, and or a, a man ape's arm That's right. for that matter. Yep. So, so Palamon gives us a little bit of the ritual that young Severian has apparently already been trained to perform: hold the sword up as someone prays, and hold it still the whole time during the prayer, and then bring it down at the signal from a quiesitor, uh, some kind of police official from Byzantine Constantinople. Palamon says, "May the Moira." favor you the moira is a goddess of fate incidentally they were sometimes said to be the children of erebus and Nyx. erebus we've met his consort Nyx will come up later but the con in nessus has a statue of Nyx above it in nordic culture the fates are called the norns and that name connects them to the moirai Aside from being three women, because the Moirai are spinners, spinning out the fates of men as a thread and cutting it off. The name of the Norns means that they are also spinners. Skald, Virthandi, and Earth. Incidentally, the word Earth could also be pronounced weird.
0: So when he says Moira there, do you get the sense that that's, I mean, it's impossible to tell, but do you get the sense that that's just more like a a sort of common blessing, or is that supposed to be a momentary glimpse into some sort of mythology or religious moment?
1: Well, yeah, it could be just a a saying Mm -hmm. for that, that, you know, could fate favor you, maybe force people. I mean,
2: I I don't think those two possibilities are are mutually exclusive. I, I think it can be a kind of standard thing that you say with without that has a meaning a, re, a religious meaning that is, that is sort of blurred or or dragged yeah. but by by overuse
0: mm-hmm. that's true that's true yeah that's i ask is one thing that we've talked about a lot lately is in this section when they talk about going to the cathedral or certain things will show up about religious Wolf will call someone names of religious offices or something like that. Just trying to figure out how much information is he giving us about whatever the sort of official religion of the world is? Are we supposed to be figuring something out or is it just supposed to be referencing that there are still these institutions? But I mean, Severian never really explains them that well. But since the conciliator and the new son, of course, are such a a huge thing, you know, what's the relationship? between those legends and the sort of common religion here. And I don't know if there is a good answer to that, but every time those little moments come up, I always try to pay attention and, and see if there's some way to tie things
1: together. The, uh, the sheath has a pocket, and in the pocket is a whetstone to keep it sharp. Zavarian so puts the whetstone in his sabertesh, his satchel, and then he puts the letter that Pelamon gave him to give the Archon of Thrax, he put it in an oiled silk and then puts the whole thing in the sheath pocket. And then he left with the blade slung over his left shoulder.
0: So that's something I wanna keep coming back to because he wears it on his back. And the one thing that stood out to me when they talk about the, the blade not being pointed was to me, I mean, of course a sword is just about always kind of like a cross symbol, but the fact that it doesn't have a point to me made it seem even more cross-like. And then Mm -hmm. the fact that the first time he has it he slings it over his shoulder and most of the time you know he has that but what that means is that you've always got this guy with a cross on his back right throughout the throughout the whole book now how intentionally symbolic that's supposed to be i don't know because how else is he going to carry the sword (laughs) but um but at the same time that's that's what we're getting And, and one of the first times he has to wear a costume right he's dressed up as a pilgrim And he talks about how he tries to hide this as a cane, but that moment too, when he's with Agia and, and wearing the costume, just to me, it made it even stand out even more to like, oh, what would this actually look like when he's got the, the sword on his back? Would it look like a sword? Would it look like a
1: cross? Would it? Yeah. So. Now now let's remember that this is 13 days since the feast of Holy Mm -hmm. Catherine when Severian was elevated. It's in the afternoon because in the last chapter, Palamon had told him that the day was half spent. He leaves the tower and he walks through the corpse door, which we only just recently realized last chapter was in the curtain wall itself. He walks through the door into the necropolis. He walks out of the necropolis through the gate that he and his friends stood in front of in the first chapter. There's a guard there this time, and he doesn't challenge him as he leaves. but. He does give him a look. Remember, Severian is in his fullaging cloak. I assume he's wearing journeyman boots and fullaging pants. He's not wearing his mask. He's on the east side of the river, guile He walks down to the river and then turns north to his right on Waterway. Uh, way is just another word for street. It's, it's the street that runs alongside the river. He's already mentioned that to his great shame was that when he learned he was being exiled he was happy that he couldn't wait to leave now he says that it still shames quote even after all that has occurred that afternoon was the happiest time of his life quote all my old hatred of the guild had vanished my love for it for master palamon my brothers and even the apprentices my love For its lore and usages, my love, which had never wholly died, was all that remained. I was leaving all those things I loved, after having disgraced them utterly. I should have wept. I did not. Something in me soared, and when the wind whipped my cloak out behind me like wings, I felt I might have flown. It turns out that torturers are forbidden to smile when they're out into the world. They can only smile in the sole presence of masters, brothers, apprentices, and clients. Clients are treated like fans.
2: <laughs> that's maybe, that's what, I mean, that's just a very, very, very sinister, you know, I mean, maybe I mean, I imagine, I'd almost imagine then to have a ritual about that, about like when you, when you, you know, turn, make, you know, another turn on the rack or whatever, that's when you smile. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's something I had forgotten too, since, until I read this. And I, I don't know how much that actually creeps into Severian's behavior later on, but it did make me kind of want to take, make a note to, you know, see, does, does this come up? More often, like does Severian intentionally not smile, or when he does smile, is it in particular places? But
1: yeah, yeah, there's more rules actually. We'll come to about the way he has to act out yeah. in public.
0: But that smile. So you know, is it his freedom? Is that he just finally feels free? Is that why he wants to to smile? I mean, how do you how do you take what's going on in his head here?
1: Well, he's always talked about how he hated the guild and also loved. And so, you know, now he doesn't have to hate it. It's not part of his life anymore. All he feels is love and everything is good. He's away from the guild. He loves the guild. He loves his past. He doesn't have to live with it. It's like having a very difficult family.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And he says something in me soared, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the moment of flying there. and. Since we're gonna get angel imagery, I guess with with the hieros and the hierogrammatics, hierogrammats—I don't know how to pronounce it—later on, but <laughs> but it it did make me wonder. You know, there there is kind of a nice moment there with you know leaving the torturers makes him feel like he's free, and specifically flying. And yeah, that's something I think we could all sort of see as re- just a, a regular sort of freedom image, but. I don't know to make it say that he specifically that made me felt like I had wings that my cloak was out behind me like right. wings that 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 connects to that other image later on that maybe he's on a he's on a,
2: a one step closer towards something yeah. else. He's still going to be a sort of angel of death. I mean, he's supposed that is true. To run off to be the lictor. It's yeah. not like he's you know, a, right a very, <laughs> and, You know, you're a bad torturer. Go to med school or something. You know. <laughs> It's like no, you, you can you can you can go be the provincial executioner, which perhaps is a little less horrible and intense than, you know, the the literal mothership of of the guild, but you know, it's still not great. Right.
1: Well, when he gets to Thrax, he's gonna fi- find out it's not so different from the guild, right. actually. So
0: And then that moment where he says, I thought there were many more days like this to come. Um and I think does he mean days of freedom? And then it was he got sucked back into as the autark that more things came onto him or is there more is that more more about you know yeah pretty soon he was going to be back to working like someone in the guild i just wasn't sure yeah he's not going
1: to be free right. anymore right he's going to be he's going to be back to the grind he's going to everything's going to get complicated when yeah. he's not doing that job yeah. that is that he believes in that that he's been trained in that you have to, in some sense, loathe. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he, uh, he, because he can't smile in front of people, and yet he can't stop smiling. He pulls his cloak around his face so people won't be able to see him. Like you said, he he fears he'll probably die before he gets to Thrax, and that he'll never return to the Citadel. He also figures that every day will be as happy as this one, and he says all wrong. <laughs> he doesn't really understand how big Nessus is. He thinks he'll be out of this, out of it before dark and be able to camp out in the country, but he hasn't even gotten out of the slum of Nessus by sunset. Remember that the Citadel is in the oldest portion of the city that is still populated. He says it would be suicide to ask to stay with any of the people there or sleep on the streets, so he just keeps walking. But now, Less than 20 miles from home, no one even recognizes him as a torturer by his clothes. But we're going to find out that that is not actually the effect that he's having. Right. But for him, he assumes that they only see him as only a somberly clad traveler who shouldered a dark paterissa. And there you go. A paterissa is a staff with a cross at the top of it in the eastern orthodox church this is a staff that bishops carry i think that is probably the simplest explanation mm-hmm. there's a lot of different uh, yeah. definitions but for people who think the torturers are supposed to be the descendants of the catholic church the reference could be important
0: so do you think he's right about that like is it you know somberly clad travel who shouldered a thing so he thinks that people don't think it's a sword or is he? Well, he's wrong? causing, <laughs> he doesn't
1: think he was noticing when he's on the bridge and he's causing a big disturbance. So, you no, know, obviously he's having some kind of effect on people because these people are closer to the citadel than even there. So he says that sometimes sailing on the river, he saw a gilded Thalamagos, an ancient Egyptian term for a house barge, lamps on the bow and stern, lamps to show off their gildings. They also sailed to the in the center of the river to prevent being attacked from shore.
0: Yeah. So first, one point about the going through the center of the the lane is that that's one of the first times I think that he suggests that just traveling on the river could be dangerous.
1: Well, yeah, you could... can't even sleep in the streets. It's got to be dangerous to have a big fancy yeah. boat sailing along. Yeah, I guess so. But they had multiple oarsmen rowing them along, and they would sing. Severian records their song. Row, brothers, row. And then they pull the oars. The current is against us. And then they reset the oars. Row, brothers, row, pull. Yet God is for us. Row, brothers, row. The wind is against us. Row, brothers, rowed. Yet God is for us. And this is the first use of the word God in this book. It's the only one in Shadow of the Torture.
0: But yeah, so the song um, or, or the chant, you know, it's about the current is against us, but God is for us. So there's, you know, circumstances push you one way, but then there's, I don't know, predestination, something divine pushing you the other way. But you you're know, still rowing. Which is- right, you're also <laughs> rowing. Yeah, yeah. So you're still working. Yeah, but it's not completely all there. Yeah, predestination. But it is also, you know, a little bit of a good point of what Severian's going to be like. The kind of forces that are going to be pushing him in a bunch of different directions here and like you said he will still be rowing but there's going to be tons of other forces working all around him
1: so. mm-hmm. well and also you know wolf loved kipling and this is very much a kind of kipling s verse that he would put in the middle of a story just for flavor
2: also, I mean, we're talking about the 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 word God. I, you know, these are these are people. You know, they they row. They're you know they're they're kind of, for lack of a better term, working class. They're not talking about the Increate all, all day. Mm-hmm. They're they're, they're <laughs> using you know a very colloquial language. And with Earth, that we always get Severian's point of view, and he's you know this apparently the great scholar with the eidetic memory. You know, he he his and you know is always going to be a little more elevated, but here because he's you know quoting people verbatim and a song, you know we're getting a little bit more of the little less stylized version, the, the how the person on the street talks, not the, the torturer and the guild or the nobleman under the sword.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. The the one thing, and this is this is more of a question, not a not a disagreement, but the one thing that. Gets me about that is that when he does meet Azzia later on, she seems like super versed in all kinds of stories about the conciliator. I mean, she doesn't always want to say a whole lot about it, but she knows various myths. You know, he tries to question her about the yeah. conciliator <laughs> and things like that.
1: Oh, boy, do I have curiosity, or oh. that, so.
0: <laughs> but, Um But and I think you're absolutely right. Like, this is what I always felt like that was showing a little bit, too. But then I always get confused between and I think this is back to why I was worried or wondering about the setup of the, what this world's religion was because I was never sure exactly what was was odd theology, what was sort of Orthodox was there were those distinctions made? Um, and the vibe I get a lot of times is that there really maybe isn't something totally Orthodox that it may just be as so old and as complicated as you know anything else where where you just have a big mix of lost and and misunderstood traditions that are kind of interacting with each other.
1: It could be such an old song; they're using a very, very old, archaic word.
0: And that could be true. That could be part of it too. It's hard hard to know. I kind of like that idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I think you're that point too, though about that. You're right about Severian does come from a, a very, I, I don't necessarily say prestigious, but a very narrow background, and a very sort of you know, he's had a certain kind of education that lets him talk about things where, and from his perspective, since everything is from there, there may be whole common ways of living and thinking and acting and talking that in this world that we just don't see directly.
1: So uh, Severian walks all night. It must be close to dawn. So he's not, doesn't actually see the sun rising, but it's obviously very early in the morning and Severian comes to a bridge. It's not clear whether the waterway ended on the eastern side. And he has to cross the bridge to the western side, or if he just chose to. The waterway was completely unlit. He walks up the stairs to the bridge. The bridge is well lit. Torches on staves every 10 yards or so. Every 100 yards, there's a bartizan, a turret for watchmen and weaponry. There's a guard's room. For each, and it is also well lit. The bridge is actually crowded with people and carriages. Some people have link boys, someone to carry a torch in front of them. Apparently, he's finally left the southern slums of Nessus. There are vendors here selling things on the bridge. There are externs, that is, people from other places who speak unknown languages. There are beggars showing their sores. They also, quote, feign to play flageolets and ophicles. A uh, flageolet is like a recorder. An ophicleidae, I'm not pronouncing that right, but an uh, as we've said, is a type of brass instrument. They pinch their children to make them cry. Everyone has something to sell, and that is what beggars have. It seems that his torturer training, is to, again to be formal and disinterested in public at all times. So he deliberately does not, quote, gawk at the spectacle going on around him despite his admitted interest. He draws his hood over his head and looks directly in front of him at all times. Now, I don't understand this phrase. I passed among the crowd as indifferent to it, but for a short time at least, I felt my fatigue melt away. My strides were, I think, the longer and swifter because i wanted to remain where i was that seems contradictory
2: i think it's just the kind of almost like chestertonian paradox that 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 wolf would relish that he's given strength by this and yet he knows he's not supposed to be there he feels kind of out of place he wants to be there you know this sort of divided loyalty which is which is pretty Typical of Severian, in that you know he's a, the torturer who sh- shows mercy. He wants to do the one thing, does the other. You know, he's constantly killing the wrong people and sparing <laughs> wrong ones. You know, just, you know. The, so uh, I mean, I I, I was re- really struck by this sentence as well, and I just thought it was very psychologically true and 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 concise. That it, it's just explaining a, a whole. Feeling in in a very short sentence. Yeah,
0: and as soon as you said Chestertonian, and I was like, it clicked. I was like, oh yeah, it's more like an it's more aphoristic. It's like more like an aphorism than it is sort of a description of exact. But it still it works so well. Yeah, I think that's great.
1: The security on this bridge are not roundsmen. That is essentially beat cops. They are peltists, an ancient Greek soldier in light armor. So they are different from the cataphracts that we saw at the tower, but who were fully enclosed in silver armor. These peltists are in half armor, whatever that means. They carry transparent shields and blazing spears.
0: This, the spears I wanted to mention because the, the blazing spears, they're repeated enough that when we're thinking about how certain groups have more technology than others, um, the one thing that struck me this time was like, every time you see the guards, they've always got their lightning spears or whatever i always think of something there's mm-hmm. something in star wars i forget which one of the guys are that but they have something that's got lightning on the end of their staff or whatever i forget imperial guard maybe i can't remember but it hit me i'm like oh the, that's the weapon they always have and it's like so yeah they do have some yeah. you know there is higher technology for the wealthy or for the army or something like that but there's not a ton of variety that it's always these guys always have these spears i don't know if that's a big deal or not but it just
1: Oh, it I think me. it's, yeah, I think it's, it's obviously uh, along with the transparent shields, it's obviously supposed to invoke a type of science mm-hmm. fictionary idea. Maybe perhaps they have, instead of lightsabers, they have little light uh, spearheads yeah. Yeah. at the ends of these mm-hmm. things. Severians so almost crossed the bridge when two peltas stop him for impersonating a kind of officer. Apparently being an unknown carnifex is remarkably rare here, rare enough that it hardly seems credible that he would not be an imposter.
0: And they even say it's straight up. It's a crime to wear those clothes. Like mm-hmm. that's...
1: So they know the clothes, but they don't believe he could possibly be someone yeah. like
0: that. Which implies all kinds of things about what the legends of this are, but also if it's not just legends, I mean, if it's a crime to wear that, then there's got to be some seriousness about like, you cannot pretend to be that thing because there are official people who, who, yeah. Who are Carnifexes.
1: Well, apparently they are the clothes, not necessarily of a of a journeyman of the order, but of a carnifex. The carnifex, yeah, that's right. So yeah. I would, I, I would somehow, I just think carnifex is gotta be fairly common. So perhaps every carnifex that would be nearby is already registered. You know, yeah. just like yeah, you, know, you don't work at the at the carnifex office. So <laughs> uh, Severian says that this is his habit. The uniform of his guild. He's not a mere carnifex, but a journeyman of the order of seekers of truth and penitence. And now they're really dubious. So they bring him to, in to talk to their lokaj. A, a lokaj is a company officer. A, a locus is a company in ancient Greek military. The Bartisan is entered up a little stair. It has a narrow doorway, one room with a table and a few chairs. The locage is wearing a curious, that is, a breastplate and backplate that are fastened together. He sits at a high desk like a cop at the police station in old movies. He's writing with a quill. Note the mix of science fantasy and high fantasy tropes. The two peltists have come along. The guy who first spoke to Severian says, this is the man, and Lokaj says that that's obvious. The peltist tells him that Severian claims to be of the Guild of Torturers. The Lokaj doesn't look up, but says, I had never thought to encounter such a thing outside the pages of some book, but I dare say he speaks no more than the truth. This tells you how little people really move around in Nessus. Severian is no more than 50 miles from the citadel. The locage wipes his quill, puts sand on his document to keep the ink from pooling into the parchment. He finally looks up and he tells Severian that he himself ordered the peltists to detain him because his clothes were causing a disturbance. The guards reported him as soon as he walked on the bridge. I notice that Severian doesn't mention his appearance causing a disturbance because you know he wasn't aware of it. He he doesn't
2: have any prior knowledge of what the city is normally going to look like. I mean, yeah. he's like, oh wow, this is very, this is very exciting and vibrant. And he doesn't realize it's that exciting and vibrant because everyone is freaking out about this <laughs> all, random carnifex coming through. Right. Well, for all he knows, they're always like that. Um, Carnifexes are a normal sight.
1: And he's going out of his way not to look people in the eye. And now it just occurs to me that perhaps the reason for that type of training is because a member of the guild is always going to cause a disturbance whenever he goes out in public. And you're not supposed to acknowledge that. The Lokesh says if you are of the guild of torturers, which is to be honest, I had supposed re- been reformed out of existence long ago.
0: Except he, the one thing about that, but that's an attitude that's actually, oddly enough, it makes, it's one of the few times that I I feel like regular people in this book think about their own society as having made progress. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. like it's the point. only time I can think that, that someone says, oh, I thought we would have gotten rid of that thing a long <laughs> yeah. time ago. You know, as if, But but in other places, every other time we're talking to people, you know, there's there's more that sense of we just live in a world where, you know, there's been things accruing on things and, and it's all sort of a mess and whatnot. And that's the that that really stands out to me just because um, I can't think of another time apart from some of the things that Vodalist tries to say uh, that really make it sound like the world is progressing rather than yeah just having sort of done the same thing forever or forgotten where it was so all the kind
2: of stagnation yeah 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 well
1: wolf has kind of created a situation for severian that he is always a fish out of water if he leaves the citadel he's where he doesn't belong if he he walks a few miles from the citadel and he's become a figure from you know fairy tale books if you are of the guild of torturers You have spent your life in the, what do you call it? The Mannequin Tower. No, no, he says. I mean the place where your tower stands. The Citadel. So the Lokash can't even remember the name of the Citadel. He only knows that it's north of the very northern side of the Algidonic Quarter. He went to the Great Keep as a cadet. But he calls it the Donjon. He asks how often Severian has gone into Nessus. Severian says, often? He thinks of all the times he swam in the river. And the the luggage says, dressed as you are now? No. He tells Severian to pull back his hood so that he can see his face. He gets up off his stool, and then he walks to the window and looks out. How many people do you think are in Nessus? No idea. No one knows. They keep trying to count them without success because the city grows and changes overnight. This reminds me of Severian's statement at the beginning of the book about the city reconstituting itself each morning. They try to tax the people systematically without success. It's a libertarian's ideal, a self-organized city where the official government is only a fly on the horse's back apparently the best they can do is police the other members of the government so the buildings like i said the the city is constantly changing every night buildings are built in the streets at night by people who just build the structures from cobblestones of the street he mentions the exultant telerican saint telerican was unremarkable aside from getting himself declared a saint but this Earth Telerican was a notable statistician of human modernity. The Lokash speaks of his madness, but I think that's just his term for nerdishness. Well, you know what we're doing here is our madness. She made, it made me
2: think of London labor and the London poor. You know, like the right the kind of you know anthropologists of poverty. Yeah. So right that, that actually just
0: to, on that that fits actually in a lot of ways the things we've talked about with. The Dickensian side of of so much of these first chapters um, to mm-hmm. have someone like that that yeah like you said that sort of London poverty kind of thing that's perfect for so much of the other things that are Great Expectations like or as Nigel pointed out Nicholas Nickleby like
1: right um, the Lucage might deride Telerican, but he is actually a fan because he's very familiar with his statistics can claimed that the people who live on garbage of others were 288,000, that there were 10,000 begging acrobats, evenly divided between men and women, and that the city increases its population essentially every couple seconds. Quote, that if a pauper were to leap from the parapet of this bridge each time we draw breath, we should live forever, because the city breeds and breaks men, faster than we respire. He concludes that, quote, among such a throng, there is no alternative to peace. Disturbances cannot be tolerated because disturbances cannot be extinguished. Do you follow me? So now we finally got back to Severian.
0: But that that idea about the population of the city seems very, I I don't know, and I don't know if I'm looking for the right kind of consistency here, but there are other parts where, you know, as they talk about how the city moves and it leaves whole parts behind it, like they talked about where the, the omophagists, right. The people who, Mm -hmm. who were afraid to light fires and how there's sort of this blight of Nessus that gets trailed behind it. It makes it like, I've often wondered is this makes it seem like the population is just expanding. Whereas other parts seem like it's thinning out quite a bit.
1: Well, it could still be expanding north faster than it's dying out south.
0: I suppose so. Yeah, it's just it's it, trying to get that idea, like like Matt you mentioned about how stagnant the society is. But there, this little part when he talks about that feels slightly less stagnant. Like maybe it's it's crazy growth, but at least it's it's still growth. And again, it's one little moment that goes against, to me at least, goes against the grain of so much else that that we're described gets described to us in the first part of the the book so i don't i don't know i'm just not exactly sure how to how to take it
1: well Um, uh yeah uh, russia does say that everything is getting smaller and smaller so you know these statistics may be old i guess that's
0: true that goes back to the weird the weird forms of learning here where maybe he read his one book and it could have been from thousands of years ago yeah Yeah, right
1: it's his favorite book but it was yeah very old So he says that disturbances cannot be tolerated because disturbances can't be extinguished. Uh, Severian unwisely corrects him. Actually, there is the alternative of order. But yes, until that's achieved, I understand. (laughs) The the Lokaj says, you know, whatever. The point is that he needs to wear street clothes. Severian can't go back to the Citadel, he says. Then get out of sight tonight and buy something tomorrow. Do you have money? A little. Then buy them or steal them or take clothes off your next executed victim. He's not going to have guards accompany him to an end. There's been some kind of trouble on the river and they're telling each other too many ghost stories out there already. There's a fog on the river. It will only make things worse. Uh, Do do we get any explicit hint about what's going on on the river obviously it could be Juturna a giant mermaid you know following Severian as he walks along the river
0: that's what i was wondering cuz she said that they followed him right um like she says later that we we followed you and we started following Baldanders when we lost lost you and she found back so i assume looking back that yeah that's what it is that there's it, there's an undine if, if it's her or if it's another undine that's that's following him
1: and he's um, supposed to buy street clothes, but he never does.
0: Yeah, he just he <laughs> ends up going to the inn right. <laughs> and, and pushing his way in. So But yeah, I was thinking I'm trying to think back to then the part where they're talking about rowing on the river and they never really mention anything about Jeterna, I don't think. But that's that's what I assume he's referring to. Um is that you know, that's something of course we're not gonna even find out that she was following him until Claw. Right. Exactly. A long time ago. But um, I assume that's what he means.
1: Severian explains to the Lokage that he's been appointed to Thrax. Now the Peltist who has been speaking chimes in. His name is Petronax and he's standing to Severian's left. St. Petronax was an Italian priest sent to examine the ruins of an abbey. And once there, he gathered a bunch of hermits and rebuilt the abbey and became their leader. Petronax says, do you believe him, Lokaj? He's shown no proof. The Lokaj has never met a member of the guild of torturers, but he has heard something of them. He's back to looking out the window. It's true. There is a fog coming in because Severian can see a brownish mist, ochre, he calls it, forming above the river. The Lokaj asks uh, Petronax what Severian smells like. The, Petronax doesn't answer, so the Lokage says, "Rusting iron, cold sweat, putrescent blood, an impostor would smell of new cloth or rags picked up from a trunk. If you don't wake your if you don't wake to your business soon, Petronax, you'll be north fighting the Asians, so you know it's like Hogan's heroes where people are always being threatened with being sent to the Eastern Front. Also, here's where we get the first sense that uh, Severian smells quite pungent. (laughs) So Petronax says, but Lokaj! And he gives Severian the stink eye. Uh, Petronax appears to be a particularly annoying charge to the Lokaj. So he says to Severian, show this fellow you are indeed of the Torturer's Guild. Severian knocks his transparent shield aside with his right arm. With his left foot, he steps on his right to hold him in place and then crushes a nerve in Petronax's neck that induces convulsions. And that's the end of the chapter. <laughs>
0: Which is a cool little moment because it's the first time we really get the sense of how like, trained <laughs> they, they have been. I mean, the only time up to this point, right, the only fight we've seen has been with the boys, right, where he's, when he takes over the apprentices, that's the only... Is that right? or am I did Yeah, I, forget I
1: assume something? they're all di- very deadly fighters. Well, stuff. I was going to say, it, it No makes wonder that he has to have help.
0: No kidding, but it makes that scene where, you know, he grabbed people and slammed his head against the wall and, you know, did all other kinds of stuff. That apprentice fight must have been really brutal. <laughs> I mean, in just <laughs> amazingly <laughs> awful ways. But, yeah, so, so obviously, you know, well, part of his training, you know, isn't just torturing people who are, you know, tied down already it's actually doing all kinds of fighting stuff too so i guess the thing to look back at it now is you know it's called terminus est of course because we get the sword you know like matt had mentioned before it's also the big line of division between his earlier life and the rest of the book and his pilgrimage we're also getting other lines of division between what he thought was the center of nessus and how other people don't even really recognize that the citadel is even really a thing right Um, and so we've got not just physical and not just time divisions but also the first time that severians you're not the first time i think thecla really changed his his attitude towards a lot of things but also the the first time he's learning really how different parts of his society are from what he had expected um, what he assumed things would be like yeah so i mean i think that calling the chapter terminus est and thinking about how it's it's about separations and and differences and borders seems perfect i mean a bridge over two parts of sides of the river there's all kinds of things in there about the structure of the just the images that we get Mm -hmm. to needing to change clothes you know going from one set of clothes to another set of clothes attitudes yeah it works really well not that that's surprising but (laughs) it's fun fun to, to see it all actually
1: Well, what did you think Matt? Oh
2: well, been great great to be here and and also just make zoom I mean I've got enough books to read <laughs> wants me to God, I need to go back and re- read
1: the book of the new Sun again you know? <laughs> Well, that's actually why we do this so <laughs> so we can read it.
0: you know I, I appreciate you coming because we kind of wanted to intentionally make it a little bit like the old Earth list where we just get different people.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, interacting. Now
1: bit. we. Do, do you have a uh, a a random theory about this chapter that you've been <sighs> nursing all this time?
2: I you know I I really wish I did that I you know I like I had like some kind of like crazy thing it's like you know if you read the first letter of every sentence and run it through. <laughs> but I don't. No, I mean, for me, I I, I just really love. This chapter, just because it's it's not the beginning of the book, but it is a beginning, mm-hmm. and it, it's both. You know, I, I think so many of the covers of even of, of the book. Um, I mean, not the one in the US, but it's just like Severian sitting out with the sword over his back, and that, and you know, that's really this chapter, this
1: chapter. You know, even though it's it's very plotish. I mean, it's just plot. And it does give you finally a real picture of the society that Severian li- lives in.
2: I mean, he, he didn't really live in society before this, you know?
1: Right, that's true. And also there is kind of a, there's kind of an allegory here, not an allegory, an elusive nature to the chapter that this is uh this is the line of division. This is the, Severian is making a choice to set out rather than just continue doing things as they have been. And that is a kind of, you know, that's a kind of an eschatological story right in there that you have an ending and a beginning.
2: And, you know, it, it's almost also kind of like a, a relief, for, you know, that he's not thinking about Thecla. He's not thinking about his crimes or the friends. You know, he, he has this. Yeah. You know, kind of brief moment right. of freedom,
1: but that's even even that is just like the end of Earth and the uh, beginning of Ushas. He has a lot to uh, be guilty. It's he, it, it's in a way a shame to be so excited about the new rebirthed Earth, considering you know all the lives that were lost, and yet.
0: And also, when we put it that way, it makes me wonder, too, because before this, he's been terribly sad about Thecla, And does he even really mention Thecla in all of this? I mean, he. No, no, no.
1: Yeah. And (laughs) yeah.
0: And he talks about how, you know, that that little moment when he, you know, he smiles with everything there. That is a kind of I mean, I don't want to say cold by any means, but he's not thinking about Thecla at that point about you know missing her or i don't want to say he has to feel guilty at every every stage of or or feel sad about it but it is telling i think that even at this like incredibly important moment in his life that he doesn't mention thecla and i don't know if that's something about you know him still being a youth or you know still being very immature in certain ways um or maybe it's just the relief that he's not going to (laughs) die you know it could be something as, as simple as that 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 He's going through elated, or he's being very elated. But if you are looking for reasons to think that Severian is particularly cold in certain ways, that his not mentioning her could be good evidence.
1: He doesn't ever call Thecla his friend, at least not up to this point. She calls him her last friend, but only when literally she knows that she has no other friends. And uh, he shows her mercy. He and he says that he loved her, but. You know, he, I think maybe, you know, he showed her mercy and, you know, debts paid.
0: Maybe so. But he loved her enough to basically throw away his, possibly Entire his life. life. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that, that was just the one, one other thing that stood out to me that I definitely wanted to mention was that, yeah, there's really no thinking about Thecla um, in everything that we get. Now, he's definitely going to come back later. Like, it's not like she's gone right. from his mind now, but, but just in yeah, this he, moment.
1: He will, he will bring it up again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so.
0: But just in this moment, she's she's absent. So
1: he's got he'll get out his little black book and start listing all the girls that he <laughs> knows. Well, and, we do and categorizing them. We and do meet
0: you're here pretty soon, <laughs> and the first thing he talks about is basically, and she was hot.
1: Yeah. Well, you know he does. She wasn't hot. Well, I mean, yet, she, alluring. That's she what she, alluring.
0: That she, yeah. So yeah. I
1: mean, yeah. <laughs> so it says I don't really know why I was attracted to her. Okay. Well, that was great, Matthew. What are you up to nowadays? You got anything to pitch? No, I,
2: I, I mean, I'm conti- I'm continuing to write and hopefully I'll be writing some more about Wolf soon, but I, I'll definitely be, be sure to let you know if I do. Oh yeah. And lo- look, looking forward to hearing this episode and the subsequent ones. So thank you for
1: having me. Absolutely. So if uh, you have any comments or complaints or corrections, you can, of course, always reach us on the Rereading Wolf uh, Facebook group, where a lot of people are quite active. Also, you can reach us on the Rereading Wolf uh, Reddit page. You can always, of course, check out our uh, Instagram page. And the uh, if you don't feel like talking in front of everybody, you can just contact us at rereadingwolf@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And, yeah, this has been really good.
0: Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. And thanks again to Matthew Keeley for coming with us and we'll see everyone next time. What's new to know? Baby started burning up the curtains. What's thought a lot a little bit too slow? We can't stop the show. Everybody's staring like a painting. Better get in good before the get in. go. love go on get it you can't help yourself go on get it you can't stand it long it's too
1: strong black line, supper, it's right Thick black eye that super right from no. thick black eye that super right from thick black
0: eye that super right from no. thick black eye that super right from black eye that super right from what's got you low? coming home a little late now maybe get to bed
2: before you get on
0: so matt real quickly yeah we do go really slow through this <laughs> hope you're hope you're okay <laughs> hope you're not bored to tears no no so, i'm, I'm good. okay, <laughs> okay.